Here we're in this two-month retreat, meditation retreat. It's a very special opportunity for a particular form of practice, a particular focusing on practice, a particular um, directing and sharpening of practice. Well supported. Uh, everything that we require in terms of our material needs Dhamma is taught we are in reasonably good health these are all very uh, particular conditions good support teachings, good health uh, quietness Seclusion. These are things that are, should not be squandered. They are, they are conditions. They are not something you can't rely on. You shouldn't, one shouldn't take them for granted. One shouldn't ignore them. One shouldn't overlook them. And when these con- very fortunate conditions arise, then really uh, you should respond to that. Make every use of it. Don't squander it. Don't waste it situation where people have come to help and take on the duties so we don't have to think about things we don't have to do very much we don't even have to concern ourselves with things so don't just use that opportunity to just not concern yourself with things just just the basic the duties and look very closely and, and sharply at what you should concern yourself about the, the training, the discipline, the training, the uh, the uh, and then the, the dhamma way of really contemplating consciousness, mind, body as it's happening in the moment, the very present experience that we're having at the moment. This is why this is why we have a retreat. It's uh, so we can do this so that. You know, to think about April, May, June, July, these all sorts of things. I mean, this is all right, but you know, it's like just to bring yourself really to the present. Notice that, say, the agitation, the anxiety, the concern, the longing. Not these are not, and these are not seen necessarily. Uh, bad karma, but they're, they're the karma of the mind, they're still creating a sense of a world a self, a person born in time, going through time, doing things, doing this and doing that and going on so that the basic scenario of the samsara is maintained and um, this particular this retreat, the retreat situations are there to help us Question that that basic scenario in the mind as it happens, not that it's a an unwholesome one or an immoral one, but just this special chance to actually just very shake the very foundations of what we take reality to be, because it's through not understanding this that beings go on and on forever, trammeled suffering fall into situations where they're impinged upon, afflicted, wounded, offended, concerned, worried, oppressed, angry, sad, and on and on and on, and never getting out of it. Very little in this society leads out of that. We improve it. We tidy it up. You know, there's good efforts made to make it reasonably good place to be Britain is alright really and, you know it's not perfect but it's reasonable efforts are made to make it reasonable and so on but nothing leads out is it it's just like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic so you, you know, get a better view as you go down The suntan, maybe, <laughs> on the way down. 
so the and the Buddha's teaching is one saying, well, you know, this is called the mundane, and we can make a mundane good job of it. And then what we're left with is a mundane result. Kind of feeling quite happy, okay, good friends, reasonable, this, that, and the other. But still, out of experience, worry, concern, feeling sad, getting hurt, being offended, offending others, the whole, that kind of thing. Um, because that's the that very experience of reality is one that's 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 always prone to that. It's prone to it. It's because of the nature of it. It's only if that experience of reality can be seen through that we're able to to stop the unconscious habits that create suffering. Unconscious habits that seem innocuous. Normal, we haven't checked and questioned. Belief in ourself, permanence. Belief in the images that flood into the mind, as being true receptors and and informers about reality. The flickering picture show, the memories and impressions, and the passions and the emotions that support them give them conviction that that charge us and light us up make us feel delighted make us anticipate and expect and dread and how all that emotional colouring paints another dimension onto the level of the picture show so it becomes 3D and then then we take part in it like marionettes in our own puppet show and then and then what happens it isn't quite that way because somebody else has got a different theatre going and it doesn't quite match and after a while you get this kind of mess up because you don't misunderstand you get hurt feelings why doesn't he understand what's wrong with her I thought they said this. Everybody knows that. But surely it should be this way. What do you mean it should be this way? It's this way. And so on. And then that feeling of, when's it ever going to be right? Whenever will the world actually conform to my puppet show? What's wrong with it? (laughs) So we blame it, don't we? Blame the... Situation we're in. Get born into a body, takes you a decade or so figuring out how the thing works. You know, and it make you get it going so you can get, make it feel reasonably good. You, then you start in your teens, you start to figure out what society's about. Groups, other people, relationships. And you get into your body, and after a while, you know, 10 years or so, then it, you know. So you, you know, you take that as a position, you get into it, and then it's, it's not enough. Then you get into a kind of relationships, the societies, groups, and so on, and then, then what? That's not quite it. Then you get into a career, profession, lifestyle, occupation. You get married, get a job. So, and that's not quite it. You take up a hobby. Yeah, that's it. No, that isn't quite it. Religion. You're getting desperate now. <laughs> <laughs> when religion comes down at the, you know, the end of the line of desperation. <laughs> but that isn't it either, because you, you know, what are you supposed to do religion? Meditation. You meditate. That isn't quite it either, because you are trying to folk, trying to get your mind together. Trying to make it work, it won't. Goes dull, goes bleary, rages, it steams with passion, grumbles and grunts, and you're trying to make it behave. It won't come together. I thought this was supposed to make you feel good. It's sort of worse than ever. Where do we go from here? Because really the approach is very much the same. 
It's an approach which we can recognize as consciousness in the sense of a person somehow separate and yet not entirely separate from the show that they're experiencing. And the show they're experiencing is not separate enough to not bother them. But it's not under their control enough to be able to give them what they want. So we can't really get with it and yet we can't really get away from it. So we're kind of stuck with a show that doesn't work. Whether it's a kind of meditation program, a religious program, <laughs> a soap opera, it doesn't quite work. This is the, uh, and you have to actually really investigate not not the the quality of the show, but actually the whole setup of, of the, this apparent reality. And so this is the approach of, of Buddha Dharma, using the teachings of the Buddha in meditation, using the practices of concentrating, calming, focusing, you know, being able to hold attention onto a point, and then discernment, being able to really question and investigate what is what, what what's happening here, what's this about. And these two go together. If we just uh, so you're learning to approach the experiences, consciousness, experiences coming through the the ear, the body, tongue, eyes, thoughts, and so on, as just just for this purpose, just as phenomena, just as things, not you know like to get from the basic position of of non-attachment to the level at which we're able to just, well, just this. It's not, we're not investing in it one way or another. It doesn't have to be good. It doesn't have to mean anything. We just, what is it? So we're looking at it as, as a phenomena, as a series of phenomena. Hey, this is what happiness feels like. It's like this. This is what boredom feels like. It's like that. This is pain. This is pleasure. This is sweet. This is salt. This is loud. This I don't like. This is my fear. This is guilt. This is blaming. This is wanting more. Like that. It's kind of approach, just like you're sorting out um, the elements in a bag. Like this and like that. And you just that process itself is very has a calming effect. We're not saying it shouldn't be this way or shut up or be peaceful, will you? We're just just that process of actually studying it in this way of non-attachment has a calming effect on the mind. We're not we're not demanding that it be calm. We're not saying, please be calm for me. Let me have a calm show. Just the studying of the of the crazy show makes you calm. <laughs> you study it in that way. This is the purpose of uh, say mindfulness is to develop this kind of quality. And you can do develop it around this kind of fairly fairly basic stuff like your body and breathing. The things that come in through consciousness in the, through those doors. Very important to learn how to 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 back up mindfulness with the with collecting this sense restraint. So you, you take in a particular Something you can manage, you kind of, you, as you meditate, as you cultivate, you learn to just put aside what you don't need right now, so you can more fully study one particular inflow, one particular stream, 
then this this is to one's advantage. This element of renunciation is really, whatever degree you take it to, is it is something you should always consider inseparable from from true practice. You know, when you actually begin to witness the process, then we say the the thing that really dominates is the mind, isn't it? Because we use the mind very broadly, the emotion, the thought, the memory patterns, the expectations, all this is not occurring in our throughout our, uh, our uh, fingertips, through our eyeballs, it's occurring through the mind. The mind consciousness is the is the dominant one. That's the one that sets up. What does it set up? It sets up, works in terms of particular uh, per- perceptions. Perceptions are like um, flickering. They can be either even visualized images in the mind. They're things that we, when we see one, we, we recognize. Uh, uh. So we're always groping along from one perception to the other. But the perceptions arise very quickly. So you think of your mother in a particular mood and picture comes up or, you know, something like that. Or you think of it's Thursday or the washing machine's broken down and you get a particular thing comes into the mind. Yeah. And now when, and then the normal way is that then that, that particular perception's got a certain, uh, um, there's a certain attraction or a certain kind of res- reaction to that. That reaction is called uh, is volition. Means there's a certain go for it. There's a certain kind of uh, response to that. Could be one of uh, fascination, love, joy, gratitude, or it could be one of worry and doubt. It could be one of of, of very variety of things. It's kind of some kind of activating principle then occurs with that. And so that then activates that perception and produces another one. So you think of the washing machine, you remember doing the washing, you remember your shirt's got stains on it, you wonder what kind of washing palette you buy to get rid of the stains, then you think about going to the supermarket, which supermarket you go to better get some grapes while you're down there because you run out, it reminds me the cat needs feeding and so on. The whole thing is this is got association associated perception. And for a normal person this is running all the time, all over the place. So the mind is continually preoccupied with this stream of what's called perception and mind formations, sanya sankara. And with them and the end result of it is a particular um mood is there. There's a kind of spin off, the mood be one maybe one of of delight, like you're thinking of going on a picnic and this and that. And this. Ooh, yeah. So what's left is a kind of this mood of delight, or it could be of some problem you have, something you've got to fix. So the end, end, end result is feeling perplexed and befuddled, confused. And then the result of that mood is that then one feels one is that mood. One feels one is confused or one is happy. And then that sense of being that then expects permanence. We either get depressed thinking it's always going to be this way, I'm a stupid person, or we feel we should are delighted. And there's that sense in which it extends itself in time. Now if it's if it's a, it's a fortunate one then it goes along quite happily until something jars it, and then we feel disappointed. You know, I was on top of the world. But the net result is that of these this perception and the grasping of these perceptions and the, the kind of mind flow with it, is that the spin-off is a sense of a person or a self. Not, not the body, but some kind of immaterial presence that imagine that that identifies with a particular mood that comes out of that and then sees that as lasting or intrinsic to its existence. Either we are that 
or we want to be that, or we're stuck with that, or that's part of our character. So that gradually, through that particular habit, recurring time and time and time again, one gets to believe in it. And then we seek seek for something else to give us a different sense of self, a different train of thoughts or obsessions or preoccupations that will give rise to a different sense of self, the one that we feel is more lasting, eternal, far-reaching, less trammeled, less worried. Or perhaps just to find something we can blot it all out with. To not have to be anybody. So this is uh, called the bhava of becoming, the sense of existence of something. And in it, existence can be either existence as some kind of, you know, vaguely felt, intuited, uh, happy, uh, advantaged un- uh, person, or it can be the existence of feeling that one you know, is, is uh, one just wants to not be anything and get out of it all. And that, but then that thing is always being jarred by more sense input which doesn't fit in with the, with the particular mind flow. So then we're always getting lost or confused or betrayed or upset or so we go along like that. We can't be left alone long enough. And we want to be nobody. And something comes along and makes us be something. We've got to turn up to something. Show up for something. We want to be somebody. Or maybe we were being something really quite nice. And something comes along and says, we've got to do this and that. We want to do this and that. Right. Mm-hmm. Or we're stuck into something that feels really painful. And then then there's the problem of trying to get out of it. I don't want to be this. I want to be other than this. So this presents us with the existential suffering of just being, feeling that you are something. And it's just... uh, (coughs) Buddha saw this as the kind of crux of the problem. And when we hold that, then the funny thing is that we also we, we feel very alone. Because that particular kind of little presentation, it locks us into that. We get very occupied with it. So we forget about anybody else, really. We kind of see them through the mist. But only in terms of our own preoccupation, isn't it? So you know, if you live in a community like this, or you live in a family, a fixed unit with other people in it, who are these other people? How do you see them? How do they? How do you, do you experience them the same as yourself, or other than yourself, better, worse, whatever? And then, how do you see yourself as set, as different from them? Mm. And we can feel, when we're suffering, we can imagine nobody else suffers. <laughs> well, we can kind of connect to the particular things we have to, that we, we feel is cause of our suffering. What's it like to be a, a lay person here? You know, if you're lay, lay in your suffering, whatever lay person here, you always sort of sit at the end of the line, you know what it's like to hell you have to go to as a lay person here. See at the end of the line, you don't understand the Pali language, you don't know the chanting, you can't do the chanting, the light isn't turned on, you're fumbling around in the dark, trying to find what's going on. <laughs> you never really quite understand all the in jokes and the references, you're totally confused all the time. You really understand what it's like. Suffering. And if you're even Anagarika. Anagarika's a suffering, isn't it? 
you don't really know what's going on. You don't know the chanting either, but, you, but people think you, you expect that you're expected to by this time. You're wearing white. They think you're some sort of holy man. But you've got to run around like a skivvy doing things all day long. Expect to look calm and tranquil and know all these kind of polite ways and proper modes of address and Buddhist things. Hell being there again. You know, it's like being a nun around here. Being a nun, you, you have to rush up the hill in the morning and rush down again and do your rush up again in the it's like doing the Olympics, up and down a hill, like a yo-yo, five, six times a day. You've got one little room to change in. If you're doing a group sitting, six, you've got a bump in this little room. People putting on their long johns, putting their scarves. So it's hell. Then <laughs> you're stuck at the end of the line. Always, people always talk about the monks and the bhikkhu sangha, and you're always left out completely. It's hell being a nun. It's almost as bad like being a samir is hell, too. Because people, you don't know whether you're a monk or an anagarika. You're wearing, sometimes you're one, sometimes you're, you're the other. You don't know where you are as a samanera. Really, a lot of suffering being a samanera. But being a bhikkhu is suffering too. You don't know what it's like being a bhikkhu. People think you're supposed to be enlightened or something. You, know, you never really get enough chance to meditate because you always, once you're in a bhikkhu sung, you've been here four or five years, so they make you the charge of the bus or in charge of the tractor or in charge of the chainsaw. And some, I didn't come here to be in charge of a chainsaw or a bus or a <laughs> logging contractor or an accountant or a secretary. I came to get liberated and stuck in this situation, set up on this shelf like some kind of Cupid doll in a. In a <laughs> Unfair, waiting for somebody to win me. <laughs> if you're in the forest, you know, they say, Oh, go out in the forest, have a nice time, be peaceful, go out in the forest. You've got to rush backwards and forwards five times a day. You never know what day it is. You're like a yo yo. <coughs> you don't know what it's like being an abbot here, I'll tell you. Murder, it's hell being an abbot here. <laughs> You're trying to make everybody happy all the time. You can see they're all miserable of sin and they're never grateful. <laughs> you know, you're always getting, as soon as you start to meditate, you've got the faxes come through the, from other monasteries who don't respect the fact that you're trying to do some practice. They want you to do it with some silly ministry business some other monasteries up to. Could you send six monks here? Could you give us three nuns? Could you do this? Could you do that? What do you think I am? Magician? It's hell being an abbot here, I tell you. So I think we've all agreed it's life is hell. <laughs> <laughs> so they work, then actually, instead of kind of thinking that it's something that happens only to to oneself, you can't know, start to actually look at it clearly, rather than think it's something particular to a particular set of occupations or roles or responsibilities that you have. We can, everybody can suffer. Because, because what? What's the essential ingredient? Why is it that I can suffer when I'm not doing the same things as an agarica or a lay person? And they can suffer. How is it that a monk can suffer as much as a nun? Totally equal at last. Why is that? When they're not doing the same things. And when you're living in the forest, you can suffer. And when you're working in the office, you can suffer. Because it's not the thing. It's, it's, the, the, it's, it's that we get stuck. It's being stuck is suffering. Being obsessed is suffering. Being occupied is suffering. Being possessed and taken over by this theatre of illusion which projects the sense of permanent self who's stuck in it witnessing it unable to switch it off unable to get out of the theatre not realising they're creating it <clears throat> and if you just wit like uh, 
the practices of focusing, concentration, is to be able to hold your attention, to point it, to hold it steady on something. Learning that, developing it. Really make, make a point of doing that, how to hold your attention, whether it's great or small, refined, mundane, or whatever, just to hold your attention on something and learn. Learn about holding attention on something. And then learn as to, hey, there's no point to think about that. Just really learn by by operating your mind rather than being dragged by round by it. Choose what you turn your attention to. Choose, choose wisely. Focus. Then if you got it wrong, note that. And then do it another way. Learn to disregard that. See it another way. The art of focusing and holding and learning. What we begin to learn is when you do try to observe the scenarios of of a life and hold them a bit steadier. You learn for a start that they are by themselves, they're continually flickering. And they generally flicker from one topic to another topic to another topic to another topic. And we think, oh, this is impermanence, isn't it? So Buddha talked about change and impermanence, how it flickers from one point to another. But if you strengthen the sense of, of focus and concentration, So you actually hold an image. You realise that the that you see more clearly that the image is changes because of what consciousness is doing. The image is no life in it itself. It's the consciousness is changing. It's a kind of something that's uh, seeking. Seeking food. Its food is the images. So it's continuing pecking, nudging, this and that. Make more of it, make less of it, develop it. See what kind of feeling comes out of it, out of a particular image in the mind, a memory, an object of craving. So that consciousness dips in, searching for the brightness of craving the kind of heat of it, the passion of it. Dips into thought, seeking security and certainty, looking for that nice, clear, steady impression that a thought can give. Consciousness goes in there, partaking, looking for that particular thing. Nice sense of solid solidity when we want that. So these give rise to the continual agitation of consciousness because it's still the assumption that those things like a thought or a, a feeling can actually impart a permanent sense of clarity or a permanent sense of delight. So time and time again when you can't actually get it through the eye or the, the hands or the tongue then you bring it up into the mind something to long for, something delightful. The conscious dives in, trying to trying to taste it. It's rather like when you have this bird battering on the window. Sees, its re- sees a reflection in the window, thinks it's somebody, it's another bird, so it attacks it. Bash, bash, bash. Goes in there. This is what consciousness is doing all the time. Doesn't get the point. It's only seeing the reflection of its own agitation. If I could finally get that bird, I'd bash it to bits. It gives a <laughs> so it charges at the window again. It goes away with a kind of probably must be pretty dazed after a while. But we do that too. Bash, bash, bash. If I get rid of this thought, bash, bash, bash. <laughs> if I get rid of this memory, bash, bash, bash. And then it's like trying to, 
then particularly when you're trying to actually drink it in you see something delightful in there and it's really just a, an image of one's own longing so the longing comes first then the image follows it and consciousness is just agitating all the time so in that agitation of consciousness when it's when it's hungry produces images that would t- attempt to satisfy the hunger the agitation of consciousness when it's when it's c- confused and doubtful brings up images perceptions that attempt to satisfy that so we get little plans don't we little things to make us feel certain yeah yeah, yeah, yeah that's it that's not so good but then there's always some little detail that isn't quite fixed in yet so you do it iron out well then try and hold it and then it kind of crumbles because something goes wrong so when we they contemplate what's going on and you use the you use that ability to contemplate phenomena you hold the perception in the mind of you know, which your life is bringing up today or this last month or a year even maybe you can go into a particular set of life scenarios for a year maybe it's just a day or maybe it's just this hour or maybe it's the one pran what that means to you or being a summoner or something what that means to you my god being a summoner oh, oh, oh. You know that kind. Of, then you actually, well, you see, just see that as a phenomenon, as a particular thing, and then it it shows you, hey, here's 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 doubt, or oh, here's here's some bit of worry here. Well, there's a certain amount of craving and lust there. There's a lot of, some restlessness here. Once you hold it, it 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 shows you what the hindrances that is firing consciousness that keeps it so lively that keeps it projecting creating these perceptions so you have to hold the perception now the way of attending to it is when you say you hold it don't absorb, you don't absorb into it you don't you know, add more to it no, it's you, you see it as a phenomenon rather than I'm in this state, what should I do? No, no. So then you're not holding it as a phenomenon, you're actually participating in it. So the other way is to, is to take something that appears to be me and my life and my world and so on and breaking it down to this is doubt, this is fear, this is loneliness. And then you get down to the kind of uh, the thing the fundamental thing that is firing consciousness, that's charging it up, that's making it move. And there are practices that deal, that go against those practices that go against those particular fundamental impressions so when there's ill will we practice kindness and when we feel grumpy and niggly and snappy and meh you know, give me a head I can bite off someone then we'll be practicing kindness and compassion just towards this, this mind just just loving it and gentling it and caring for it like something that's sick mm-hmm. and when it's fired up and restless and you know rushing around doing you know creating lots of things then we we cool it down we recollect our death these are ways and means as kind of simple ways and once you once you begin to understand the root hindrance you can see the, the image or the impression or the perception that you need to bring up in order to counteract it. This is, say, a standard means which we call opposing. So you can have the method which is called 
suppressing, which is just to actually deliberately ignore that that image, that impression, that mood, that thought, and go to something else and focus on that and hold it. That's the that's the means called su- um, su- suppression. And you get, but maybe the thing is too strong for that. Then you have the means called opposing, where you actually, okay, you take that on that you're angry, you're upset, and then you, you actually bring something else through that, the opposite. Not necessarily to fight with that, but onto it, onto it itself, onto the very emotion or the feeling. This is called uh, opposing it. Not in opposition, not in a kind of conflict, but but actually like a sub, uh, kind of changing the energy around with it. And that's something also to 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 see in terms of one's very way of practicing. When you get too intense, when your whole idea of practice is about intensity and and focus and drive, and it, that becomes a kind of dominant theme. Just well, wait, wait a minute. Now, just to see what's coming up out of that, what you imagine or expect of yourself, what kind of things are going on, and then perhaps we need to just shift our attention to something more broad and expansive. You're finding yourself charged up, getting a lot of passion running through your system, getting highly focused, getting concentrated, but also critical of others because you're in a kind of overcharged state, then maybe it's Times that just kind of reflect on that, that in the in their practice, and start to just kind of open your focus, so you're taking things more broadly. So you can you you also in meditation you're actually contemplating if you, your attitudes and your your ways of meditating, the assumptions one makes about the, about it the fixed habits that get established. And these because these are also acts of consciousness, aren't they? The uh one of the clearest wisdom signs the Buddha used was called the perception of impermanence, anicca sanya. And he said, This, if developed, is a great benefit, a great fruit. And so, in the perception of impermanence, you cultivate this, which is not a philosophical statement. So, when the mind is running and crazy, we can philosophically say, well, it changes, it's impermanent, it's going from bad to worse, you know. So what? Yeah. We can get a kind of certain sense of detachment from it like that. But this is, this is, uh, this is a very primary, uh, undeveloped aspect of anicca sanya. If you use it with, with, a, with a good focus, then you see that Anicca Sanya refers to the not not the actual just the theatre show itself, but the the very phenomenon itself. That is the particular image in your mind, whatever it's doing, you know, the very the very fact of its existing is impermanent. It's something that's continually rather like a, um, a movie show which is created by procession of, of images it's the light behind it is pulsing through it similarly we can begin to focus just on the fact that the perception itself you actually hold a perception is something that has a certain kind of pulsation to it and your attention scans it moves over it and consciousness re-injects it with certain drives and expectations or uh, negativity or, or fascination. So that the actual compounding of that perception 
is something that's happening is a is a process rather than a fact. It's something that the very act of, the very quality of a perception is a mass of impermanence. And the self that seems to be the result of it is also it's the mirror image of that perception and it has the same quality to it. It's shimmering. You can't really hold it. But you don't we don't do that because we never really consider actually fully questioning who. So it's kind of a blur, but it's me. It's, it's just because we always think there isn't a point. The point isn't me. The point is this: this thing is happening to me. I mean, I've got to sort this out because it's my mind. But you know, we never really question or examine who is experiencing it. How permanent that seems, even when the show is flickering and dancing. And we say, "Oh, yeah, that's impermanence." But this one, the one who's watching it. There's a certain quality of, of permanence about them, isn't there? Maybe the maybe the mood is one of trying to get away from it, or being oppressed by it. But there seems to be something very solid there, and that is not seen, that is not studied as a phenomenon. That's not looked at as, hey, what's this? It's just a uh, well, what am I going to do? You know, this, is, this is going on. My life is a mess. But who? Whose life? And when it comes down to it, just at this moment, who is it? So, it's something that has, it's not so immediately seen. It's something that arises out of uh, strong directed attention and questioning of wherever permanence seems to be in the object, in the phenomenon itself, in the scenario it's presenting, and in the person, particularly in the person who seems to be the passive object or the creator of that experience. And one of the uh, qualities, uh, uh, so this side, this side of the practice. So far, we've been talking a lot more about the act of holding and calming and sustaining and absorbing into things. That, that side of it, just to get attention, to kind of fine-tune attention. And when you cultivate like that, it, it is supposed to be something that's done with mindfulness. You don't get strong concentration without mindfulness. It requires, say, the ability to turn towards something, to notice the the wavering, to be able to check the energies in the mind, to to rally them, to steer, to sustain, to note, and so on. It requires a lot of fine-tuning around a particular object in order to get a steady, calming reading and and a giving and a going into it. When you can do that, it gets it can be very captivating, even slightly deluding, because it can give rise to the feeling of of us me doing it, me being it. me getting somewhere and then you know I can get a bit further maybe wisdom we can begin with something very simple the, that aspect of it just the questioning and we use the quality called Dhamma Vijaya the ability to investigate things as phenomena including lack of concentration presence of concentration entering concentration leaving concentration hindrances and their and virtues.
hey, this is this. There's faith present. Now there's worry. Now there's a sense of pleasure and happiness. Now there's a sense of doubt and wavering. And when we have the begun to recognize what the processes of fixing and evaluating are about, ability to to point the mind, to define, to determine, to focus, and then to evaluate, to question, to to feel it out. Then you can we can do this, and uh, just like a, just making the effort um, to use to you can use these quite quite uh, simply. When we're having a rough time, when the practice is not going very well, then you can't really use kind of high levels of refined absorption and concentration to work on things because you can't get it together. So you have to use low level. You have to use more of the wisdom faculties without much without much of the absorption faculty. Wisdom faculties are applied and sustained thinking. Use Vitaka and Vichara at the level of, of, of questioning your thought, questioning, thinking out loud to yourself, what am I doing? Who's feeling this? What is really happening to me now? Was I like this yesterday? If this wasn't here, would it be a problem? If I lost that, would that concern me? It's this kind of questioning when you're depressed. You think, if this was happiness, would it be a problem? No. So what is it then? Why do we take depression as permanent and not happiness? So, you know, we feel depressed, think, oh, it's, it shouldn't be this way, I'm in a, I'm in a real mess, I can't be like that, and I'm never going to get it together. It seems permanent, doesn't it? But it's a phenomenon. So you question it. Why is it a problem to me? Because it's mine. Because it's creating it myself. And then, who does it create? Who is the myself that holds it? How can there be such a thing? Where is he? What's her name? What does she look like? When was he born? How old is he now? Who is she? Where is she? You just keep kind of probing that thing. And you see it's not a person. It's a habit. A habit of, I don't want to see, I don't want to be with this. And I know, no, it's that kind of habit pulling against it. So because of that habit, we're stuck with something. You see that habit and relax it, then you, the, the hindrance stands away from the mind. Because consciousness is no longer diving into it and, and regenerating it. It stands away. You don't partake of that. And it dies through lack of food. When you have a doubt, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with my flat? What am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do with you know, I'm this old, I'm this young, I've got this to do in the future, the past, the present, the tax, the mortgage, and the dog, the budget regard, turtle. <laughs> do this and that, and this and that, and this and that. And that. Well, you know, it's doubt, isn't it? Doubt. Doubt. And then gives rise a very unpleasant sense of self, unsteady, uncertain, confused, lack of clarity, you know, much authority over your life, not in control, you feel kind of oh, so oh, shut up. Stop it. You won't stop it. Because it's a aversion to the doubt. And you you believe in it. You're actually taking sides, you're actually getting involved with that thinking process and saying, Find me an answer. 
consciousness keeps diving into that saying give me the clarity give me the clarity give me the answer but we're looking and we're feeding on the disease looking for the cure by feeding on the disease but then the thing is you say the mind thinks well okay I don't want doubt I'll stop it but you won't stop it because that's all you're doing is, is adding negativity to it aversion no wisdom in it and to see a doubt is like you know all that concern about my wife and my car and my dog you know all that kind of thing that happens when I think of those things is a phenomenon a perception not saying they don't exist they're real out there but right what's happening in my mind is a perception isn't it this is true it's not a real thing at all it's really a perception that's all so then okay now then the mind is what how does the mind how do I relate to that perception I wish it wouldn't be here I wish it's not happening okay so that's that's called aversion isn't it negativity aversion to it Now, if we could just stop doing that aversion and see the doubt as this is this 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 swinging like a pendulum, and we don't have to solve it because it it's not a personal thing; it's just a thing. It's just a function of consciousness to do that, to change, to be impermanent, to keep flickering. So now it's flickering with doubt. So then the mind can stand apart from that because it's not investing any kind of self in the presence or the absence of that condition. The phenomenon is itself. It's not myself. So then it, when you see it like that, the thing is not fed upon we don't partake of that so it, it, the very food of perception consciousness and the desire that's the food of perception is removed and the perception stops not through aversion but through wisdom and that's a totally different thing so in Buddha Dharma, you talk about cessation, the stopping of things, which is not the aversion of things, it's not the extermination of things, it's not the annihilation of things, it's to stop doing it of things. The stopping of perception is not the annihilation of perception or aversion of perception, it's just that we don't wish to partake in that. There's nothing in it for us. All that's in it is impermanence, insubstantial. All that's in it is not ours, nothing that we can be or have. So we don't partake in it. This is the stopping. And the stopping of perception is the stopping of consciousness. Not the annihilation of consciousness, but just consciousness not acting not partaking not grabbing not performing when there's stopping of consciousness then there's, there's no images in the mind and then it's very peaceful and we begin to more fully understand the nature of perception and consciousness when they arise, how they arise, what their characteristics are, how to understand them, how to allay them, how to work with them, 
how to bring them to cessation. So then one is a master. And the things, one is no longer oppressed by them. These are faculties to cultivate and develop. Just the simple, when you find you can't focus and your mind is really unsteady, just use more deliberate applied thought. Mind easily goes to thought rather than just the kind of frightened, you know, discursive thought, deliberate, sustained, challenging, questioning thought. And then use it because if mind will actually focus around thought, then look at the thought and you ask yourself, who, who is, who is frightened? Who's worried? Who's guilty? And then focus on the question mark itself. Went right at the end of that particular, the tone of question and the question mark itself. Because that question mark is actually a statement. Statement of uncertainty, of the nature of all perception. The mind then goes quiet, just for that, maybe that quarter of a second, half a second. Because you can't make anything out of it. It's just it's completed. And then, oh, well, okay, who, who says, who thinks that? Well, yeah, but I can't really, so I'm the point of this kind of practice. Yeah, okay, well, who, who? Just, just, you know, throwing the mind, throwing attention back. And then we, Realize at that moment you get clearer about that stopping moment, that question mark and the stop. That's all right, isn't it? It's not the most ecstatic experience of our life. It's not got trumpets blaring around it. Curtains don't open saying, congratulations, you've now entered Nibbana. (laughs) It's just, all right. Then you look more closely, and you can go back to it again and again. It's it's actually it's kind of got a stability to it. It's very peaceful. And the only thing that's not all right about it is just one's the wavering of attention that doesn't sustain it. And you can actually use that particular sign to to pull out of the whole rigmarole of the conceiving mind. This is ways, means to cultivate. As I said before, this is a very special opportunity. As long as we haven't really done this, the the mind, the chitta, has been vibrating. And out of those vibrations has arisen the world that we feel at loss with. For as long as we haven't attended. But there is enough uh, skill and goodness to bring us to this point in time. There's enough goodness in the world. There's enough wisdom there's enough kindness still to be able to offer us this opportunity in our own bodies. We've got enough skill in our own minds. We're surrounded by people who are good enough and helpful enough and loving enough to support us. It's a wonderful possibility. And then not to waste it. Challenge the threads that bind one to self-protection 
projections, dilly-dallying, dreaming, imagining, dreading. Just challenge them. Don't deny them. Look at them closely. Challenge them. Who do they belong to? Where do they start? Where do they end? 